0: Early in the 2020s, we were going to hit this magical tipping point where you're going to have electric vehicles that are cheaper and better. Mm -hmm. And the better part's interesting too. I think that's starting to kind of get into people's head that that actually driving them is is superior. It's a superior driving experience. Cheaper and better. And then, you know, we started to look at kind of the the industry forecast, the oil industry forecast, and none of this was there.
1: You're about to hear my conversation with David Arpin. We discussed how he got started in investment management, his views on the future of oil, the future of recessions, and why team culture plays an important role in their process. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to McKenzie Investments Bites and Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnur and I'm delighted to be here with David Arpin. David is the co-team lead of the Blue Water Boutique. He's also the lead portfolio manager on the McKenzie Global Growth Fund, the McKenzie U.S. Growth Fund, and contributes all of the non-Canadian names in the Canadian Growth Fund. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Let's get started with your background. Uh, I know that you studied economics uh, in school. Obviously, you're now on the investment management side. How did you make that transition?
0: So, uh, if you go back to the mid-1990s, I went to Queen's University, took economics, ended up doing a master's there. And at some point began to realize that I didn't really want to do a PhD and continue to do academic economics forever. So, came to Toronto and tried to get a job, which was, it was 1995. We just had 1994, which was the big backup in the bond market. Right. Uh, tough year for equity markets, so nobody was hiring. Um, ended up starting working at a pension consulting firm, because that was the only place that would have me. Okay. So, I worked there, and part of pension consulting is analyzing investment management firms. So, I spent a bunch of time looking through the various Canadian and global investment managers and started to realize that their job looked a lot more interesting than my job because securities analysis was really interesting. The problem was I knew absolutely nothing about it starting absolutely from zero. Um, if you have a background in economics, you don't take accounting. Sure. You don't know what a business does. Um, I knew how to price options, but I didn't actually know what a put option did, Okay, <laughs> but I could price it. So that was helpful. Um, so you kind of had to start from zero and work up. Um, in 1998, I finished my CFA and then I switched over to um, Royal Sun Alliance and started on the investment side. So how did
1: you go from economics, like clearly you had the opportunity to take a look at other investment managers, which got you interested in the business. How did you get a background in investing?
0: Reading, which is the way I do most things. So. What I started to do was basically read anything that I could find that was sort of, there's a lot of kind of seminal works in investing, and it's the basics that everybody ends up going through at some point, right? You start with going you know, back to Ben Graham and mm-hmm. working through sort of the value way of looking at the world. And then I ran into Phil Fisher, um, which is a completely different idea. So Phil Fisher had the idea really of long-term compounding. right? And when I first went through it, um, it struck me that it was almost more luck than skill, right? So, you have this guy who finds two wonderful companies and then owns them forever and does incredibly well. But, you know, the question is, can you really replicate that? So, I kind of put that aside for a while. And then, of course, I ran into uh, Warren Buffett, but really Charlie Munger. So, mm-hmm. Munger was the one who turned Buffett away from the original sort of Graham and Dotty, as he called it later, cigar butt investing, where right. you're, you know, you're just picking something up and hoping it works out for a brief period of time, to the idea of, of franchise investing and the idea of really buying and holding and owning some great companies for long, long periods of time. And know that was interesting, so I read all of the Buffett annual reports, mm-hmm. um, which is decades worth. Uh, they get a little repetitive by the end, but, but the front end of it is pretty interesting, because they're just ideas that you don't really see, or at that time, I hadn't really seen elsewhere, um, and started to build up from there. And then, at the same time, I tried to look at companies. Now, of course, I had no idea what I was doing, so that was a bit of an uphill battle. Sure. Uh, I was taking the CFA, so I was working through accounting and started to understand the basics of accounting and how that worked. Um, and I found some really interesting businesses that were much more in that long-term compounding vein. Um, Fastenal is an example. Costco is another example. So these were businesses that had been really successful for a long time, and then just seemed to continuously be successful. Right. So it was an interesting question of of what is that, and and what's you know how do you find that? So that's kind of where I started out. Um, so, it's, it's sort of this combination of, of the conceptual end of things and then the practical end of things of actually trying to find businesses that and, and understand how businesses work. When I went to Roland I was working on the Canadian side. Now, if you're familiar with the Canadian universe, you know that that means that you spend a lot of time staring at energy companies sure. and a lot of time staring at banks. Um, so, I did that for a while. And then, I ended up moving over to Mackenzie mm-hmm. and sort of got sucked into the U.S. universe. The reason for that is, is when you go through the various universes in the world, the U.S. is this massive monster with, you've got thousands of companies, you've got every industry you could ever imagine, and ones that before you go into it, you can't imagine, uh, with all kinds of, I I think, you know, all kinds of the best companies in the world, ultimately. So, that's how I ended up sort of working my way towards the U.S. It was just, this is the most interesting, most difficult mess that you could ever look at. And then try to kind of systemize how to do that. Right.
1: And if, if you go back to your original comments about trying to find compounders, clearly a lot more in the U.S. and in Canada, given the breadth uh, of the U.S. and some of the businesses there. Do you find any other distinctions between U.S. domiciled uh, companies and those elsewhere?
0: So really, really high level, broadly speaking, if you look around the world, the best management teams are in the U.S., um, they are the fastest to react to problems and that they often react to problems before you as the investor base are even really aware that there was a problem. Okay. Uh, when you come to Canada, the management teams are a little more mixed. Um, I think we found European management teams as a whole have this fascination with creating committees and subcommittees yeah. and <laughs> sort of discussing problems and you know forming another committee to determine if there really is a problem and then coming up with a solution and discovering six months later that they got a different... Pro- it's, it's, it's a different style. Okay. Um, a number of the companies that we own on the global side are actually run by expat Americans. OK. So we've kind of run with the, the US management style. It fits what we're trying to do a little bit better, uh, I think, as well, which is that we tend to, as you know, we tend to be fairly decisive. Uh, sure. And we kind of like management teams that sort of follow that same pattern of, of looking forward, trying to figure out what they need to do, and then just going and executing. I want to pick up on that
1: decisiveness a little bit. Um, One thing from the outside looking in, uh, I I view the Blue Water team as having somewhat of a unique corporate culture. Um, Would you describe the corporate culture of of Blue Water?
0: Insofar as there is a single corporate culture, um, look, the the corporate culture, the, the underlying idea is pretty straightforward. Our job is to do the best we can to be right. Sure. And that's, I mean, if you think about it as an investor, really what you want to do is be as accurate, as right, as close to reality as you can be. That's, it requires a bit of an odd culture, because when you do that, you have to constantly accept that most of the time, a lot of things you started to think are probably not right. Right. And you're going to have to adapt your thinking all the time. You're going to have to drop things. You're going to have to change your mind. You're going to have to constantly try to iterate towards, sort of towards reality. So that's what the culture is about. It's it's about, I mean, you can call it intellectual honesty or curiosity or whatever you want, but that's really what the culture is about. It's And you see, you know, there's the temptation to get sucked into sort of the, I said that on stage, therefore I'm going to have to hold by it forever. And it's not the right way to think, right? The the right way to think is to say, yeah, just because I said something doesn't make it true. Um, You know, I I say internally, you, you can ask as many questions as you want, but you can't tell the world what to do. So, you have to listen to the answers. And sometimes the answers are very different than what you thought. I mean, when I very first started in the investing world, you know, the Graham and Dodd idea of sort of companies on general, on average, sort of fluctuate around the index and your job as an investor is to buy them when they're sort of cheaper than, and then you sell them when they're more expensive than. But the idea is the performance pattern really long-term, things are kind of indexy. They generally sort of go up with the market, and then the value you're adding is, is buying and selling and timing it accurately. And then, you know, as I said with the Phil Fisher and the Munger and the Buffett stuff, that really got kind of turned around in that the best investments don't look like that. The best investments are these, these long-term secular outperformers. So you kind of have to accept that just because you thought something or just because you started in a certain place doesn't mean that's right. That's not where you're going to end up. So, the, I mean, the internal culture is just – it's pushing people to do that. Right. And it, it's pushing a willingness to accept that you're, that you're going to make mistakes and that the best thing you can do is figure them out as quickly as possible and fix them. Not to, you know, stoically defend something that you did that was, that was wrong. Sure. Um, and that's not – it's not easy for people. Um, it's not easy to constantly live in a world that's sort of probability-oriented in a world where things are very uncertain, and, and that's okay. That's how it is, and that you're going to make mistakes no matter how hard you try, but you just have to re, you know, react and think and move and change. And that's something Dina is, I mean, she pushes that very hard as well. That's just – it's how to think. Great. great. Um, and when you
1: take that thought process and we'll call it intellectual hon- honesty or transparency in, in your thoughts, um, one thing that strikes me about your team that is unique as well is it's fairly small. There's only four individuals. Do you feel that the that, that smaller size of the team helps promote uh, that ability to be more transparent or is it a, a smaller re- for a different reason?
0: It's a combination of things. So yes, I do. Um, I think if you start getting into committees, right. you know, there's, there's the whole concept of, of how do you make decisions the best way, and the issues around groupthink, the issues around, you know, if you have six people sitting in the room, and, and someone's going to play the devil's advocate. And I, sure. Everyone feels very good. You know, we, we looked at this all. We've, we've come up with it. But you haven't really tried to solve the problem. You've set up this framework where everybody feels good about themselves. But the real question is, is what's the right answer? And there is a right answer. So, you know, how do you actually get to that? And that's much more of an individual thing okay. uh, or a pair thing, as we try to do. I and mean, we generally work in pairs on, on right. universes. Um, and I mean, there's some other pieces too, right? So when you think about, you know, as four people, how do you cover sure. the world? Yeah, of course. And there's a couple interesting answers on that. And one is that when our chief investment officer Tony Lavia got to McKenzie, he, you know, he had us all in a room and, and went through a couple thoughts around investing. And one of them that I thought was extremely interesting was he'd been on a big investment group in the US and they had analysts internal that covered everything. So, you had analysts that were covering all kinds of different sectors, all kinds of different industries. Sure. And their job was to basically rank them out and decide which companies would outperform and which companies would underperform. What the firm decided to do was look at how accurate they were. It's probably a good idea, right? You can sure. go and check. yeah, right. <laughs> and... You know, Tony's point was, when they did that, they looked across this group of 40 or 50 analysts, and what they concluded was the most accurate analyst was right about two-thirds of the time, and the least accurate was right about one-third of the time. Okay. And I think the point coming that we were supposed to take away from that was, you know, understand you're going to make a lot of mistakes, understand, et cetera, right? It wasn't the point I took away from it at all. So I thought about it for a while, went home, uh, and started to run simulations on it, basically Monte Carlo simulations, about what happens if decisions are purely random, what would it look like if you had 40 or 50 analysts and you're making binary yes, no decisions on top of 40 or 50 companies? And the answer was the most accurate random should be about right, about two thirds of the time. And the least accurate should be about one third of the time. That was terrifying. Sure. So what you come away with is you can't do this. And I started thinking about it. And what I thought was, it's not the right question. The right question isn't can you look across 40 securities and rank them? The right question is, can you look across 40 securities and find one or two that you should be investing in? Which is to say, 38 of them are probably random. You can't tell, but you can really narrow it down to the handful of companies that really are unusual superior for reasons that should be pretty obvious. So when we look around at covering the world, I mean, literally what I've done in the States was, and this was not probably the most fun exercise, is went through about 1,000 businesses, Um, which sounds horrible. So, I'd actually, I mean, amusingly enough, I stole that from Buffett as well. So, someone had asked him about, you know, how do you go through the U.S.? And he said, well, look at every single company. And of course, I said, that's insane. And he said, well, start with A. Um, (laughs) Okay. I started with sectors. Okay. So, if you start pulling the world apart on a sector-by-sector basis, you can literally go through every single company in a sector and look for businesses, industries, structures that are different. So, if you look at every single bank in the United States, mm-hmm. you will find two or three where you will say, this is really different. There's something unusual about this company that, that seems really durable, okay. because they're not really competing with all the other banks out there. They're in this unusual vertical, unusual area. If you look through communications, you're gonna find the same thing. There's a couple companies that are really doing something a little bit different from everybody else. And it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious when you go through them. So essentially, what we kind of came down to was, you don't need a team of thousands of people looking at things, Because then you get into the challenge of, you know, how do I figure out which person is actually good? What you need instead is this short list of businesses which really are identifiably superior for reasons that are kind of structurally obvious. And that's, you know, some of the big holdings in the funds. If you look at them and you just go through them, you kind of go, you know, Visa. Visa, MasterCard. Sure. Yeah, like, how how complicated is it? Well, it's kind of obvious, right? So, there's two companies that do that. You're not going to get a new competitor because you can't. They're just structurally superior. So that's kind of what we ended up doing. So I have this very short list of businesses that I rarely add to and I rarely take off from because if you're looking for companies that are really going to be successful over long periods of time, you shouldn't be knocking them off every three months. Sure, right? they, they really sh- and occasionally we lose one, and mm-hmm. it's usually because something's happened in the industry. Um, an example on that would be if you think about advertising in the in the U.S. and globally. Sure. This is handful of advertising global these holding companies. Um, you still want to come a business called Omnicom. Mm-hmm. Phenomenally, it's a really great business. The problem was is that traditional advertising is struggling because the world is going digital. Right. And it's, it's not—I mean, this isn't a cyclical problem. This isn't a, you know, you had a bad quarter. This is sure. sort of structurally there's something going on here where the, where the money is moving. The profit pools are moving to a different area. The biggest beneficiary of that is Google, Facebook, right. but also Accenture. So Accenture now has this massive digital advertising business that's growing double digits. We own Accenture. So you're kind of on the on the winning side of what's happening structurally, um, and that's that's kind of how we're organizing the world, both in the U.S. and on the global side. Right. It, it's a very narrow group of businesses that you would hope to be able to own for long, long periods of time. And the main thing which pushes us in and out is, is valuation, where things will get very extreme one way or the other. Right. And you know, our, our job, ultimately, I've said this before, it's, it's not to have a collection of the greatest companies in the world. It's to make money. Sure, I mean, that's why we're here. It's, it's, and it, it, You have to take valuation to a new account. Um, ben Graham was right. It's super important. So that's kind of what pushes us in and out. But the group of businesses that we think are the most fascinating and the best out there, doesn't change much over time. Um, They're really unique.
1: I want to stay on this uh, concept of structural um, headwinds. uh, And you've written a number of white papers. one specifically that stands out as you're talking about structural headwinds is the 2017 white paper on uh, the electric cars uh, and what that means to the resource market. Take me through, uh, first before we go into the depths of the white papers, take me through the thought generation behind the white papers. How do these uh, thoughts come and how do you decide uh, where to,
0: what to pursue? Yeah, how do white papers actually come about? So the answer is white papers come about because we run into something that is large and seems probably important. Okay. Hunt it down. try to. I mean, I talk about going down rabbit holes and trying to come back up with rabbits. And most of the time, you don't. Most of the time, you go down and you look at a, a question or an issue. And what you come back with is, I can't solve this. Okay. Uh, maybe somebody else can. And I'm going to keep my ears open and see if anyone else does. But I just, it's too uncertain. I can't forecast it. I can't predict it. Um, but sometimes you go down and you find something where it seems highly likely that something's happening. So, the EV one and, and sort of the electrification one yeah. was, was a case where – I've been looking at oil for 20 years. And when you look at oil, the only thing you ever really cared about was the supply side because demand was easy. Every year, demand grew. Right, It grew with global GDP. And it just constantly compounded and grew and grew and grew. So, we got to 2013-14. And I've been looking through uh, all the shale oil companies in the U.S. And every single company was telling you that they were growing double digits. A lot of them are growing 20% plus. You looked at global supply forecasts, and they did not take that into account. So, you knew you had a problem. So, we positioned the fund based on that. And then what happened was, We kind of came through that, and in 16, we were coming out of it, Mm -hmm. and Dina made some comment to me about Tesla, to which I, in my usual fashion, came back with some flippant thing about, you know, it's probably irrelevant. And she said, have you looked at it? And I said, yeah, okay, no, so let me go look at it. And the more you dug at it, the more interesting it was. So, when you look back in history, you see this transition from horses to cars that happened over about 15 years, which is shockingly short right. and also shocking. Horses to cars is this massive transition. Right. You're looking now at a change of how the, essentially the drivetrain works. You're moving from internal combustion to electrification. And what you can see is this pattern of technological change where something comes out and it's either way worse, but 10 times cheaper, and then it gets better, right. or better but too expensive, and then it gets cheaper. Mm-hmm. And when you looked at the EV stuff, what you had to conclude was you saw price performance of batteries improving 12 to 15 percent a year compound. Wow! And you started to run the numbers forward and kind of went, you know, early in the 2020s, we we're going to hit this magical tipping point where you're going to have electric vehicles that are cheaper and better. Mm-hmm. And the better part's interesting too. I think that's starting to kind of get into people's head that, that actually driving them is, is superior. It's a superior driving experience, right. cheaper and better. And then, you know, we started to look at kind of the, the industry forecast, the oil industry forecast, and none of this was there. You know, OPEC was talking about 1% EV penetration in 2040. Right. So it, the numbers were so staggeringly off what, and it was very difficult to see why this didn't happen. Then you start running around and looking at, you know, how, what do you need to do to the grid? Is this possible? And it's, it's, yeah, well, basically, this is similar to rolling out air conditioning in the U.S. South. We yeah. were able to roll out air conditioning in the U.S. South. We, we succeeded, so I'm sure we can do it twice. Sure. Um, you know, looked at the batteries themselves. What materials are going into that? That was the pinch point. There's a pinch point around cobalt. Mm-hmm. So are we going to have enough cobalt? Can you modify battery chemistries to take that out? Um, I had to do a whole bunch of work understanding how a battery worked because okay. I do <laughs> not have a physics background. So, you know, you're, you're kind of at, at, at the base level, you're just looking and poking everywhere. And what kind of came out of it was, yeah, this seems pretty much inevitable. And then the next piece to it was, yes, but the market doesn't seem to know about this. Right. So then you have to make some investment decisions. What does that mean? And the answer was, of course, we don't really want to have a large energy exposure if you're going to have this secular change. And I guess the other piece to think about is, you saw this in 2014, 2015. So global oil supply was about 2% above demand. And the price of oil went from $104 to $26. So, tiny little over. And it's important to understand about commodities. Right. You have this huge base, which doesn't drive price. The price is driven at the margin. Mm -hmm. So, if you start to get in a world where where demand is beginning to flatline and fall, and yet there's still too much supply, you're going to have this horrible pricing environment that will be really, really difficult for companies. And do you want to own the companies? Sure. And the answer is, we don't think so. We think it's going to just be tough. So why put your capital in something that's tough when you don't have to? And that was sort of the investment side of things. And then I, I've you know we've been talking about it for three years. And when you watch the evidence, it just keeps coming out very, sure. very relentlessly consistently. The forecast for EV penetration keep going up and mm-hmm. up and up. And I still don't know that it's really being thought about properly. Because I always have this question with consumer goods, right? If I offer you something which is cheaper and better... Why would 42% of people take me up on that, and 58 of people apparently? So right. you saw it with flat-screen TVs, which is the one I often talk about, right? Yeah. Flat-screen TVs, 2003, 2004, they're beautiful, right? You walk into your sure. future shop at the time of your Best Buy, and you look yeah. at this thing on the wall and go, like, I want one. Sure. And then you look at the price tag, and it's $12,000, yeah. and you go, I, I, I don't want one. Yeah. <laughs> Two years later it's three thousand bucks, a year later it's a thousand bucks, and mm-hmm. suddenly everybody switches. And you know, it's two thousand and four they started to have mass adoption. In twenty eleven the last conventional TV uh, manufacturing facility in the world closed. Right. It was that fast. And I'm kind of looking at the electrification wow. side of things and going, yeah, it's a similar story. And then the other piece there was was really initially we were thinking about this as small passenger cars. And you can see it filtering into other areas. So you're now seeing it in trucks. You're right. starting to see it in aviation, which I would have told you was impossible. Really? Yep, uh, BC uh, Harbor Air, they actually are working towards getting their first electric plane. Wow. So it's short hop, right? Yeah, it's sure. not You're not going transatlantic on an electric plane. But you're starting to see wow. these changes. So then, you know, the broader idea was, gee, you know, anything which is sort of horse-powered at some point probably was horse-powered, and now it isn't. Right. And it's going to be changed again, so we're going to move to sort of a very, very broad electric platform. And that's, I mean, amusingly enough, we were talking to a European company about this that that's they're number one in the world in low voltage, and they're number one in the world in medium voltage, and they've been preparing for this for 10 years. Mm. So I kind of feel like I was behind. Right. But but we got there, you know, early enough, I guess. So that was that was that sort of white paper. And then I guess the other piece to it, which is, you know, you watch the information come in, you watch the data come in, and you right. sort of iterate your views constantly, trying, as I said before, like you're trying to be right, you're trying to be accurate. So you're constantly modifying as you get more information as you go along. And the answer could well have been we put out a white paper, and we were horribly wrong. Sure. Um, and that's fine. A little embarrassing, but yeah. fine, right? <laughs> because ultimately, you know, what we're trying to do is, is what I talked about before. We, we're, we're trying to preserve capital. trying to grow capital. Right. Um, so you have to accept that sometimes you're, you're not going to get it right. And... You do your best, right?
1: Fortunately, this time, it seems like you're on the right path. At it least. looks like it so far, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, just a follow-up question on that. You mentioned uh, translating the thought to the investment uh, action um, that you avoided resource energy companies. Why not go long cobalt, for example, if you've identified this as the, the piece of the supply
0: chain? So is isn't a good question. Um, when you think about it, Uh, Cobalt's pretty hard to get at, right? So most of cobalt is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which, you know, if you call yourself a democratic republic, not a good sign. That's right. (laughs) Um, There are some companies with cobalt exposure, but it doesn't tend to be a huge part of their business. The second answer to that is a little different. So when we're looking at companies to invest in, the best thing I can find is a monopoly. Sure. Monopolies are beautiful. They're beautiful because you don't have competitors. Perfect competition. This is an economics thing, right? Y'all learn about perfect competition and perfect competition is this wonderful thing. And it is. It's great if you're a consumer you're, because you're a consumer. <laughs> it takes prices down and destroys economic profit. Sure. Not so much fun when you're on the investing side of things. Sure. So, what you're looking for is is areas that are not competitive. If you look at, at lithium or you look at cobalt or yeah. you look at – what you see is, yeah, you're going to have rising demand. But, man, you've got a lot of guys in there, a lot of companies, a lot of suppliers – no real structure or organization to the market. Okay. So, it's got that commodity flavor of it's going to be good for a bit, and then you're going to get too much supply, and it's going to be bad, and then it'll be good for a bit, which is just not, like, you can't consistently, so what you would look for is if there was a lithium monopoly, um, by now it would trade at some insane valuation, but, sure. but that would be incredibly interesting. Right. There just isn't. Um, I mean, that was the other piece of it, right? We, you know, if you look at the uh, the USGS, United States Geological Survey, they give you the information for every single commodity. You can find where it's supplied, how much there is, what the resource base is, what the reserve base is, and you kind of look through that and look for pinch points. Right. Um, that's where we ended up with cobalt was the only one that seemed to be a pinch point, but all the other ones it just seems there's there's vast supply okay. um, that's available. I mean, you have to put capital up, and you, of you know it's the usual mining cycle, yeah. but it's there's nothing special. And then the other fear that I always had in that area was. Battery chemistry isn't set, Sure, and we know that theoretically the battery chemistry that we currently have is terrible. Hmm. Um, it's something like you know, 140th as good as you can get in theory. Hmm. Those batteries we can't make. But we're continuously plowing capital in R and D money into figuring out how to improve that. So the concern I always had was, you would get a battery which suddenly is cobalt light or has almost no cobalt, or right. we you know we figure out how to substitute it out with some other more broadly available commodity, and then you're dead. Right. You're sitting there as an investor owning something that nobody wants, which is not you know it's not a lot of fun. Sure. Um, so that was that's kind of why. I mean, the other question is, which I've been asked before, is why not Tesla? Right. And you know we talk a lot about looking for companies that are steady compounders. Of free cash flow, mm-hmm. um, Tesla—they're actually getting there, mm-hmm. but not really the nature of that business so far. Um, and obviously, you saw the recent short squeeze yes. on that, which I thought was Very deeply much. amusing. Yes. But um, you know, be, be careful about shorting companies that are sort of disruptively changing the world. Right? You can be right, but when you're wrong, it's pretty painful. I guess so. Um, so that's—I mean—that's—it's—it's it's more. A lot of the, the background economic industry stuff that we're doing is more about trying to avoid the big drawdowns okay. rather than, you know, trying to buy lottery tickets and crossing your fingers that right. you got the right one. Uh, it, I think it's easier to look at. I mean, actually, this is, again, I'm stealing from Buffett on this one, too. But, um, you know, his, his comment on that was when cars came to America, you shouldn't have known enough to short horses. Right. Uh, so same idea, right? Um, so y- you have to be more careful about the losers. And they're easier to identify and they're bigger. Right. Uh, which also makes it simpler. OK. Sort of looking forward, uh, given that background
1: on energy, could you foresee yourself getting back into the energy space?
0: Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, I think we're out. Um, I just – and this is – I've talked about this for a while. This is – there's a donut hole problem, right? So, if you sit down and you go, 10 years from now, this will happen. Yes. And it seems highly likely that. That doesn't tell you anything about the next six months. So, you absolutely can have large supply disruptions. We've had two, actually, but neither of them really seem to have gotten things going. But, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that you could have a big enough supply disruption that that oil and oil companies would be an interesting investment for a brief period of time. The problem is is that you're gambling. I'm gambling on something that I can't analyze. I don't know what the probabilities are, and I have no way to figure it out. And that's not – it's just not how – we really want to invest. I mean, we want to invest on things that are as close to a sure thing as possible. I want
1: to turn to the most recent uh, white paper that you put out, which I thought was really interesting, uh, all about recessions. You did a a deep dive in in recessions. Uh, Describe to me what you found
0: uh, as you did your research. So this came out of a bunch of work we were doing in... Probably 2018 and then into 19. Um, this has been a long cycle, right? We're 10 yes. years into the cycle. Everybody knows it's a long cycle, and everybody knows what happens next, which is you have a recession. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take a lot of work or experience to know that recessions are not fun for the equity markets, right? Sure. So when you have a recession, that tends to be when you have the big drawdowns in equities. Um, there are some ways to mitigate that as an investor in terms of your sector positioning, in terms of the types of companies that you own. Mm-hmm. But I think it's pretty difficult to avoid it altogether. So you can do better than, but it you know the whole market's dropping. It's pretty hard to find things that go up. Sure. Um, so kind of thinking our way through recessions in general. Um, and I had some of the pieces on this. In particular, there there was this paper in 2007 looking at housing. And it was actually a microeconomist from UCLA who was looking at the effect of the housing market on the U.S. economy. And what he concluded was housing downturns create recessions. So, his, his paper was actually called um, – Basically, that uh, let me think, if I can get the exact name. Um, oh, housing is the business cycle. Hmm. So essentially, you had this, and this was presented in 2007 at Jackson Hole to the Federal Reserve. Wow. Giving them a slightly I mean. large hint that you might want to pay attention. <laughs> right. And by the way, by 2007, the U.S. housing market was imploding, right? It sure. started to fall in 2006. It yes. didn't really show up in the market and the economy for another year. But yeah. it, it, was, it was, you know, the writing was on the wall. And <laughs> what he basically said was macroeconomists are completely ignoring this. There, there's, you can't find housing in any macro stuff. And yet this pretty clearly is leading the economy. So we had this piece of, gee, I better pay attention to housing because if, you know, if the building cycle starts to roll over, I have a huge problem. But then we had another issue, which was the economy seems to be doing these weird little cycles. So, instead of doing this big upturn, downturn, we've had much more muted, slower growth. And then we're doing these small cycles around it. So, what was driving that? And then the final piece was, you know, the back half of 2018, the fourth quarter of 2018, the market dropped substantially. It was down about 20%. And the concern was around recession. It was around trade. Um, And it was around, you know, the U.S.-China trade war. Sure. What you saw in 2019 was no general recession, but this very broad-based manufacturing recession. that was truly global. Which led to the kind of interesting question, okay, why did that not trigger a general recession? Yes, housing, but, you know, let's be serious here. When the total manufacturing in the global space starts to really turn down, why are we not going into a general recession? And, you know, to me, you think about it and you go, well, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that would have been a general recession. And then you kind of sit back and say, well, 30, 40 years ago, what's changed? So, we spent a bunch of time over the last decade kind of talking about the service world and how services, the businesses themselves, tend to be more free cash flow generative, capital light, much less cyclical. And then you sit back and think about it and you go, well, we all know the world's getting more and more service oriented. So... The question mark was, and I first talked about this on stage in Montreal, um, was about, you know, we've had this transition from a manufacturing world to much more of a service world. Is that really what's causing recessions to get less common and and get smaller, uh, more muted? So went back and pulled all the recessions in the U.S. going back 150 years and threw them on a chart, and it was the strangest thing I have ever seen, which is that you have this linear decline in the percent of time the economy is in recession. So you go back 150 years ago, the economy is in the recession half the time. Now it's in a recession less than 10% of the time, and it literally just comes down steadily know, decade by decade, thirty year period by thirty year period, which is what I was looking at. You sit back and think about it and you go, Okay, so what's happened? You know, we have the manufacturing service thing, but one hundred and fifty years ago the world was what? It was farming. It was agrarian, right? So half of people are working on the farm. Farming cycles are twelve months. of course, they're 12 months. Yeah, right. You put the seeds in the ground, you cross your fingers, you hope it comes up, and half the time it doesn't, apparently. Sure. So you had this much more cyclical, narrow cycle world. And then you moved into the manufacturing world, which was really the 50s and 60s. You got to the point where one-third of all people in North America were working in manufacturing, which is a huge number. Yeah manufacturing cycles are kind of five to seven years. So you start seeing the elongation of the cycle and less frequent recessions. And then over the last 20 or 30 years, you've had the big move into intellectual property, the big move into services, and the big move into government. Government's much bigger. Mm -hmm. Healthcare doesn't really have cycles, right? That's 20% of the US economy. Education doesn't really have cycles. So what seems to have happened is the likelihood of having a recession and the depths of recession seems to be declining. Now, that doesn't mean no more recessions ever. Of course. Different different thing. But it, from an investment standpoint, it means you probably should expect longer and longer cycles. And then the other piece to it, which we've talked about, is this mini-cycle idea that I mentioned. Right. That seems to be getting driven a lot by interest rate policy. So what ends up policy, but also the markets themselves. So sure. what happens is the world starts getting excited and thinking global growth is going to come raging back, and rates start going up. The world has a lot more debt. It starts to choke growth off. Right. Things start to slow down and roll over. And then we see the opposite. The you know ten year bonds collapse, you to right. go right back down. The Fed starts cutting rates. All the central bankers is what they're doing right now: yes. continue to cut rates, and that tends to perk the economy back up. But within this narrow band, it, it's kind of two percent growth plus or minus one or something. Sure. Whereas it used to be three percent growth plus or minus five. Like you know, the ranges were really really big relative right. to where we are now. And I think it's just that a big chunk of the economy doesn't really cycle; it's very steady, stable. Huh. Um, so that was that was the piece. Uh, where we ended up. Fascinating. Um, and
1: when you look at your portfolio, again, translating the big idea to uh, how you're actually positioning it, are you finding yourself more and more involved in service businesses? Or, or how do you take that
0: idea uh, and apply it? Yeah, we're pretty servicey. Yeah. Uh, that's the first piece. And then the second piece is, you know, if you, if you don't have that idea and you start thinking that you are very end of cycle, Um, There's some sectors which historically have held up extremely well in downturns, Mm -hmm. healthcare being one of them, consumer staples being the other. So you would naturally gravitate towards businesses in those areas because they should do better over a reasonable time horizon than a more cyclical, more industrial, more whatever kind of business. Um, The thing is, is if you sit back and start thinking that that's probably not really what's going to happen, then you're going to end up moving more towards uh, industrials and IT, which is, if you look at where the portfolio is today, that's, that's where we've Gravitated. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not a top down thing. It's more as just as you go company by company, you kind of go, yeah, this is probably interesting because, you know, my big fear is a huge downturn. But if I don't have a huge downturn, then I don't have that. And then this suddenly it's a pretty compelling investment. And, you know, the risk reward is pretty interesting. So that's it's sort of adjusting and allocating within the portfolio kind of company by company. But when you look at it from the top, what you see is the sector weights moving around. And I think that's really what's driving that. Interesting. I want to talk a little
1: bit about uh, performance expectations. Uh, clearly, the Blue Water Boutique, across all your strategies, very strong performance uh, over the, the medium to long term uh, numbers. Um, the style has certainly been in favor, uh, a conservative growth style that's been a tailwind for for uh, all participants within that space. Um, what, what do you uh, put as your main driver behind the performance? And I guess more importantly, why do you suspect that will persist or will it persist? <laughs> I'll
0: answer the last part first, because it's easiest. Sure. Um, You can't tell if it's going to persist. Okay. Okay. There's no way to actually know that. Now, let me kind of take you through how I think about all Mm -hmm. this. So there's been big changes in which investment styles or ideas work over time. Yes. And I often get the feeling that, that the impression is it's sort of random. I don't think it's random at all. So, if you look back over the last 60 or 70 years, what you see is different areas of the economy, different industries have these periods where they do better. So, the companies within them naturally do better, but the areas do better. So, let's go back. The 1960s is known as this big, you know, the nifty-fifty big growth world, right? What happened at the end of the 60s, early 70s? Oil went up 1,000%. Gold went up 1,000%. Mm-hmm. For some reason, companies in those areas did pretty well over the next 15 <laughs> years, which was you know, you look at it from the top down, and you go, oh, well, it's, it's a move in the market from growth to value. It is, but it's also a move in the market to which kinds of companies are doing better. Right. So, if you were an oil business, this was like the greatest period in history for you. Sure. You did phenomenally. If you were a standard growth company, suddenly you had this inflation problem, you had wage demands, your cost structure wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great environment. Capital gravitates towards areas that are doing better. Sure. You got through that period, went into the 90s, you again had this big growth thing. Well, part of it was because we did have a technology bubble, but part of it was also... Starting in the mid to late 80s, you saw this big collapse in the commodity cycle. It was a few different things. One was on the oil side. We got a bunch of new production that came on. The second was the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union started to push commodities out into the world because they were trying to get hard currency. So you had this huge downturn, which bottomed finally in 1998 with oil at 11 bucks. Right. Meanwhile, over in technology land, you have these insane valuations for companies that were um, very concepty. i I'll put it that way. <laughs> sure. as in, they had no hope of ever making money and basically required constant financing in order to survive, right? Uh-huh, yeah. So then you had the cycle switch. You had the rise of China. And you basically, again, had this big period where oil and gold went up something like 1,000%. Right. And the market moved again from growth to value. What you've seen over the last while, the last you know 10 years or so, is again, we're back to the consistent growth businesses are doing extremely well. The more valuey areas, which is to say the more capital-intensive, commodity-ish areas, have had a really, really tough time. So the question that we sit with always is that's nice, but what's going to happen next? Right. So are there big structural drivers that are going to push us? away from the growthy standard consistent areas into more commodity or into a different industry or into something and the answer so far is we haven't found any right i'm looking just haven't found them so our suspicion is things continue the way they've continued, which is, is you know, it's not the conclusion I, I feel like I should be coming to. I feel right. like I should be concluding, you know, we're going to switch, we're going to go back, it's going to change, it's choices, got yeah, to yeah. mean revert, right? Sure. It's got to mean revert. Right. And the problem is, is that when you look on the IT side of things, there's so much disruption right now. This is something we've talked about for a while as well. There's so many areas where the problems are not cyclical. They're structural. So if you think about retail in the U.S., if you think about the mall business trying to deal with Amazon, if you think about media trying to deal with Google's of the world, Mm -hmm. uh, with Netflix, with now Disney Plus, um, there's automotive is in turmoil. Those aren't really cyclical problems. They're much more structural problems. So I'm not sure that capital is really going to go flying back into those areas because they don't look very good. Um, so that's you know that's the broad answer in terms of why we've done well. I mean, part of it is yeah, the style's been in favor. The other thing is is that we've done a decent job of avoiding the big drawdown areas. Right in Canada, that has been the energy area sure. where we've been very light. Um, and I you mean, know, we've talked about why. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 not random. There's there's some thinking behind it. Um, going forward, we're I mean we're just going to keep trying to do the same thing. Well, yeah, it of work? course we'll see. You never know.
1: Thanks, David. We always conclude these podcasts by getting a series of recommendations. Let's start with your favorite books. Uh,
0: you're going to have a tough time getting anything
1: out of me on that one. So, oh, okay. so the
0: answer is I don't really have a list of favorite books. Okay. Um, what I've tried to do over time is read things in a lot of different areas. And and I blame Charlie Munger for this one. So he did a, it's a speech, I think, uh, to the Harvard Law Society where he talked about – there's a lot of different ways of looking at the world. And when you look at areas that are quite different from your own, there's different mental models, different ways of yeah. thinking that are incredibly useful. So I have spent a bunch of time poking around in evolutionary biology. Like, Why would you do that? And the answer is there's a very large analogy between how industries work and how competition works in the economy and how competition works in nature it's actually very similar. So you have the same sort of mental ideas that you can sort of apply to both of them. So you're pulling from that area, okay. which is very well thought out by incredibly bright people. Yeah, of course. And just sort of jamming it into the industrial world and jamming it into the business world. So there's no individual thing. I spent a bunch of time poking around in U.S. history because I wanted to understand. I just wanted to understand the formation of the United States because you know, I am a Canadian and as you know, we have some different ideas about how the world works than sure. the States does. Yeah. So the question is, you know, what were those ideas? What was the foundation? What was sort of the intellectual history? And trying to understand that a little bit better, because I think it's useful, especially when you're trying to understand U.S. healthcare. Um, there are some different views of how the <laughs> sure. world works than what we all grow up with, right? Yeah. So it's I don't have anything specific. I mean, the only thing I can say is, you know... Be broad. Read in a lot of different areas. I spent yeah. a lot of time looking at um, behavioral psychology, sure. trying to understand how I think, how people think, what your brain does wrong, how to try to fight it and guard against it, and try to set up structures that that help you deal with it. Right. Um, so just a lot of different pieces, but nothing, no, no, nothing individual.
1: Is the uh, evolutionary biology your current interest, or what are you currently digging into now? <sighs>
0: I don't really know what I'm digging into now. I'm kind okay. of in a, I, I'm kind of in a soft spot right now. All right. Um, I spent a bunch of time dealing with physics, and it's just uh, I'm looking fiction. Try some fiction, maybe. Yeah, maybe I should. Right. <laughs> Have a life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Good. Um, how about some of your uh, favorite movies? Um. So yeah. Thanks to Disney Plus, we're now in the middle of rewatching all the Avengers movies. Oh, in, yeah. in, uh, in order. Sure. Uh, all the Star Wars movies. Sure. Um, the, the, the Marvel movies are much better than the Star Wars movies. Um, is so, right? So that, yeah, absolutely. There's a big non-consensus view, probably. I'm sorry. It is <laughs> what it is. Uh, <laughs> look at the acting. Now, I don't mean the original three, right? Those are marvelous, All but right. certainly the ones that came after, not so good. Fair um. enough. Um,
1: and you, uh, you travel ac- across the country doing marketing a fair amount. Uh, what's your
0: favorite place to visit in Canada? Uh, see, I'm not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say. So currently my favorite place to visit is Halifax because my daughter's going to school there. Okay. So there, there, there's your there's your answer, but it's, it's sort of biased.
1: Fair enough. Uh, David, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely.